0: My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, all or some. Come hither all, such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear. Of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them. And for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So, So cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 2. Welcome to the Society. Our scene opens on Covent Garden Underground Station. It is a late spring evening, and London is as usual several degrees warmer than the surrounding counties, so it is quite pleasant. A lady of our brief acquaintance is stood outside the station, or at least she is a lady of acquaintance for those of you who listened to the first of my tales. And if you did not, and for some reason are starting on Episode 2, well, who am I to stop you? Do as you like. For you, then, O listener who shuns the conventions of narrative progression, The lady in question is of average height, and is grey head with skin delicately arranged over long bones, and the air of a stately and aged giraffe loping across the plains. She glances at her sensible hob watch, pinned to the left-hand side of her sensible green blouse. Seated on the floor, tucked under a dirty blanket, is a tired-looking young man. He leans against the deep red tiles of the underground station wall, half asleep. Dr Harrington, which is she, has already given him ten pounds when he asked for any spare change, which was unusually generous even for her, and used the opportunity to glance at his nails the white of his eyes, and the area around his mouth, and any other readily visible indicators of health. She was quite distracted, though, so it was only a perfunctory check. Shortly, a small, round, purple-haired person of indistinguishable gender came sliding from late-evening pedestrians towards her. They were wrapped in a brightly coloured patchwork coat and carrying an ancient battered suitcase with a white-painted label on it. They seemed to move among the late commuters and early revellers like a rainbow trout navigating a series of complicated rapids. When they reached the entrance to the station, the tired young man asked them for money as well, and they distractedly gave him some change, and a shiny red button from one of the many pockets about their multicoloured person. Hello, I'm here. Where are we going? I'm afraid it's not something I can talk about until we get there. How are you feeling? Not going to lie, I'm no good. All shaky. Takes a lot out of me doing that thing that I did. I understand. It's the same for me when I use my present. You know what? Right here. Follow me. Doctor Harrington swept away from the station out onto Long Acre and through the gently darkening streets of Covent Garden, past the Freemasons Arms. They went, where a man clearly already slightly the worse for drink was leaning against the wall, apparently mustering the energy to move on. And turned left onto Drury Lane, opposite the towering Art Deco edifice of Freemasons Hall. Up Drury Lane, Doctor Harrington continued, at least once having to pause to let Jen catch up on her shorter legs, until they reached the narrower, high Holborn end of the road. Whereupon she turned down a side street and then suddenly another until they came upon an innocuous door in a white-painted wooden wall. There are any number of such doors around the streets of Covent Garden. Some may lead to the backstages of the theatres or storage areas, some to basement flats, and some to bijou underground cafes. The painted-over ghosts of faded bills and posters clung to the wooden wall above the door, whatever events they had once spoken of now long obscured. A scattering of litter blew by as Dr. Harrington extracted a key from her handbag, which was sensibly sized and hard-wearing but had a hint of being not sensibly priced about it she unlocked the door and pushed it open revealing a red painted brick wall and some stone stairs heading downwards into darkness she flicked the light switch by the door banishing the darkness and stepped inside summoning Jen to follow her and closing the door behind them once inside Dr. Harrington took a deep breath now we can talk I? yes perhaps I'm overcautious you want me to go down there? I'm afraid so "'I realise you have already placed a great deal of trust in me by coming here, "'but I must ask you to trust me a little more.' "'Trust you're doctor?' <laughs> y- "'Yes, if you will. "'Penky promised me you're not going to murder me in the spooky cellar.' "'Dr. Harrington paused for a second and then smiled and offered her little finger. "'Jen offered their own and the two locked fingers in the dusty stairwell "'under the ancient flickering light bulb. "'Then Dr. Harrington began to head down the stairs with Jen, warily following her. "'The stairs went down much further than Jen had expected "'and as they did, wooden steps gave way to a harder surface.' As they passed below what they assumed was floor level, the brickwork also became older, and the air cooler and drafty. The stairs continued at least two floors below the ground, Jen assumed, and then sharply turned a right angle and widened out. Dr. Harrington flicked another ancient brown light switch and poorly illuminated the long foyer of an old theatre. The stairs, now revealed to be polished white marble with a red carpet held onto them by brass stair rods, continued down into the foyer, which disappeared off into the gloom. The lower parts of the walls, below a flanged data rail, painted the same crimson as the carpet running down the floor. The upper parts were wallpapered in a pattern of swooping tropical birds, green, blue, and scarlet. The wallpaper was peeling in places, but still bright and unfaded by the sunlight, which clearly never entered this place. There was not even the tiniest skylight in the walls or ceiling to allow the smallest of rays to penetrate within. At the far end of the hall, two very large things loomed in the poor light, but it was not possible to make out what they were from this distance, only that they were tall and towering. Chen shrank back a little against the wall, unnerved by the strange grandeur, but when they bumped against something uneven, they realised it was not a wall behind them, but the gilt frame of a large painting, that went almost to the ceiling. They looked up at the painting to see a warm, florid face smiling cheerfully down at them, framed by curling dark hair. The man depicted wore a black frock coat with a high colour, and a white cravat neatly tied in a bow. In the background of the painting, behind the man, was a stage, whereon a clown in a frilled ruff and spotted trousers bestrode the scene like a comedic colossus. His face was painted white, his hair a blue plume, and his cheeks and lips highlighted with bright red. A brass plate on the frame read, Dresde Grimaldi, 1778-1837. Dr. Harrington led them down the steps and into the long foyer past a shut-up ticket booth set into the wall at the bottom of the stairs. They passed further imposing paintings, a man with a ferretish face, skirt-like beard and moustache before a scene of a skipping actor in a patchwork coat with a hair tail on his cap and a black leather half-mask. Tristano Martinelli, 1556 to 1630. A well built woman with tight golden curls in a late 16th century blue dress, supported by a farthingale. Isabella Andorini, 1562 to 1604. She was surrounded by multiple stages full of loving couples, dancing together, kissing, holding each other in tight embraces. The other side of the foyer, against the wall, was a long glass case with a jumble of apparently random items, each carefully paired with a typewritten label. Props, masks, items of clothing, at least one red nose. The top shelf held a series of pictures, daguerreotypes. Cuts de visite, black and white photographs, and a handful of ones in colour. Jen was able to make out a few labels Emmet Kelly, Oleg Popov, Ricardo Gonzalez Gutierrez, Charles Adrien Vetter. Realisation had now dawned on Jen's face. Clowns? It's all clones! Yes, the faces of our antecedents watch over us, inspiring us to be as dedicated and as unwavering and as hilarious as they were. But. I promise I will explain everything. Dr. Harrington and Jen passed several doors. Some had quite comprehensible signs over them. Dressing room, properties. One was more enigmatic. It read mysteriously, Hall of Forbidden Faces. As they approached the end of the hallway, two long staircases could be seen leading to some upper floor on the left and right of an arched doorway. Through the doorway was a darkened theatre, in the back of which the proscenium arch of a stage could be dimly made out behind rows of tall shapes. A sign over that door, curious enough, read not Auditorium, but Library. Further inspection revealed that the tall shapes were indeed a series of bookshelves, set up where once there had been rows of stalls. Upon approach to this end of the foyer, it also became clear what the two huge figures at the end were. Statues. Each was in its own arched marble alcove on its own square pedestal. Each stood tall enough to leave only a foot or so between the top of the figure and the ceiling, The stone of the statues was rougher, older, and more worn than the smooth marble of the plinths on which they stood. Although both were roughly the same height, neither was it quite in proportion with the alcove in which they had been placed. Both were unusual in other ways. The average, the usual statue, when it is not of some known statesman or other worthy, depicts the idealised human form of the time of its production. Some muscled or gently curved godlike form, graciously gesturing towards the observer. These statues were not so. The left-hand figure was lanky, continuously so, with an exaggeratedly bent Roman nose, knobbly knees, and skinny arms. It was dressed as a legionary, with a helmet with neck guard and cheek plate, and segmented lorica across its shoulders and chest, all of which seemed intended for a much more powerfully built soldier. A square tower shield leaned against its hip, a pilum spear against its shoulder, and a short sword of gladius hung at its belt. The right-hand figure, also bore a short sword, but was dressed as a gladiator of the type known as a murmilo. Undressed except for loincloth and segmented metal arm guard, a plumed helmet, and a pair of leather sandals. In contrast to the legionary, the Mermilla was rotund, with a great barrel like belly and ham hock arms. Carved into the old stone under the feet of the left statue as she passed, the legionary, Jen, saw the name. Maccus. At first, she struggled to read it as the U had been carved as a V in the Roman fashion. Dr. Harrington ducked off to the left, just before the first of the long stairways, and pushed open a door, the sign over which simply read, Manager's Office. The room was large and had obviously not been a manager's office for quite some time, although it did indeed seem to serve as someone's office, and also their break room, and possibly even an occasional bedroom. A battered leather sofa equipped with an array of multicoloured blankets and cushions squatted against one wall. A small kitchenette, not much more than a sink, some drawers, a kettle and a microwave had been installed to one side. A series of wooden tables ran along one side of the room, one of which might even have been the original managerial desk given its apparent age and size. There was a laptop and an office chair behind it and a series of box files, notebooks, and other stationery. Dr. Harrington gestured at the room. Welcome to the Bantaloon Society. Would you like a cup of tea? Throughout the ages, the wanderer of the roads has moved through tale and song. Il Matto, the beggar or vagabond. The troubadour strolling from town to town, the peddler selling wares, a mysterious figure bringing adventure or magic to whatever young man or woman had ventured out of their homely village to seek their fortune. In more recent times, that character became the hobo, riding the rails during the Great Depression in the USA. The romantic ideal of story and film masks uncomfortable truths. Such people were unwelcome, discarded by society forgotten and reviled. It is a hard life on the roads for those who find themselves cast onto them for one reason or another. Here is Will. You may recognise him from earlier, when he was the recipient of the generosity of our main characters. His nap appears to have reduced his fatigue somewhat, and he seems a little more perky, although he is still distressingly thin and sunken-eyed. His clothes are cheap and worn, but warm and many-layered, raising the possibility that he may be even more distressingly thin beneath them. Since we last saw him, he has gathered up his few possessions and headed to another road in Covent Garden, where he knows there'll be better footfall at this time of the evening. Hopefully, slightly inebriated and jolly footfall, inclined to be friendly and generous, and preferably not inclined to giving him a kicking. His right elbow still sometimes aches from the last time that happened. He has seated himself on the pavement to produce a penny whistle from somewhere about his person, which he had begun to play. <laughs> Presently, a pair of the Metropolitan Police's finest, are arrayed in their peak caps and high-vis jackets, come to inspect it, perhaps to ask him to move on. A brief conversation ensues. There are smiles, and then the police walk off, apparently convinced of the appropriateness of Will's presence in this area. Will watches them go before he begins to play again. One of them looks briefly confused, but then shakes her head and strolls on. Will continues to play, smiling at passers-by as they throw the occasional coin into his upturned woolen hat. The evening wears on, and the number of people on the street declines. Will begins to yawn and decides to gather up his things again. He has made a reasonable amount of money this evening, enough to feed him for a while. He pockets his penny whistle, and wraps his coat around him against the evening chill. We follow him down the streets of Covent Garden, right onto Drury Lane, following the route that Jen and Dr. Harrington did a few hours before. Will, however, passes by the turn-off that Dr. Harrington took, and instead continues up the road towards Holborn, until he reaches a set of steps leading up to the blocky concrete towers of a hotel. He climbs the steps and wanders in through the glass door, approaching the desk, where a receptionist greets him politely, but casting a slightly suspicious eye over his clothing and general appearance. A few more sentences of discussion later, though, the receptionist brightens up and laughs at the door then hands Will a white plastic keycard, apparently without any money of any kind having exchanged hands. spanning back, Will slides the card into one of his many pockets and heads down the bland, white-painted corridors until he finds the room number written on it. He opens the door to room 247, dumps his things by the bed, and kills up in the fresh white sheets, falling asleep almost instantly. Out on the pavement in Drury Lane, an indistinct figure glances down at something in their hand, and then up at the hotel. The what? The Pandaloon Society. Milk? Yes, please. One lump or two. I don't want the milk if it's lumpy. (laughs) Sugar? No thanks. Dr. Harrington handed the plain white china mug of tea to Jen, who sipped at it cautiously. Thankfully, the milk tasted fine and was not in any way lumpy. Dr. Harrington leaned against the desk and sipped delicately at her own cup. So, when did you discover that you could bring toys to life? When I was a wee-in, it scared me, so I tried not to do it, but sometimes I couldn't stop it. It's no just toys either, anything with a face. I made a shop dummy move once. I don't. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I was the same. I discovered my present when I was a girl. The first person I used it on was my sister. Why do you call that present? A sort of linguistic smokescreen. If one discusses gifts in front of people not in the society, it can sometimes give an indication one is talking about something supernatural, and that is to be avoided. Two clowns talking about presents, though, will hopefully be assumed to be discussing something entirely innocuous. A child's birthday party, perhaps. Oh, eh, that's clear, though. Yes, it is, isn't it? Now, regarding the society, the short summary of it all is that we are a secret association of entertainers. Clowns, actors, circus folk, that sort of thing, who have presents. Exist to protect the world from evil, particularly where it interacts with our spheres of influence. Jen's eyes widened, and she could not prevent a delighted smile from spreading over her face. A secret society. A clandestine clown confraternity. And they wanted her to join. Images of clowns with all sorts of wild magical power ran through her brain, flying, becoming invisible, shape shifting. I feel I ought to warn you it is not the stuff of comic books and action films. It is dark and dreadful work, protecting the world from creatures that take joy in laughter and attempt to corrupt it. Creatures who predate on the innocent and unwary. Creatures like that puppet you encountered back at the hospital. I have encountered things more terrible than it, and if you join us in the society, so will you. No one comes out unscathed. Some do not survive. Pay is obviously commensurate with that risk. The society has a number of investments and bequeathments acquired over the years, which are more than enough to pay the handful of people we currently employ. I have to think about it, eh? And I want to hear more, to help me make a decision. More about the Society? Aye, for a start. Well, there is a lot to tell, and there are books in the library written by Society performers. We call them performers. In the past, they go into more detail case notes in the archives and that sort of thing. The most important and useful information the actual origins of the Society, and why some of us have presents. that we don't know, I'm afraid. Oh, that's a pity. Yes, I'm sorry. We are fairly certain, though, that it all started in ancient Rome. We do know that because of the we two gentlemen out there in the hall. Oh, aye, I saw them. They're glad. Who are they? Machus and Bacchus. The names are carved on the statue's prints. Two characters from the Italian farces. They were improvisational masked comedy shows performed before the athletic games in the city of Tella in Campania in southern Italy. The statues have been studied. There is a document about them in Italian Library. And the stone they're carved from is from that region. They're thought to be from the 1st century AD, about the time the Farces were banned. It had become very popular in Rome, and the players had become dangerously arrogant, even beginning to mock the emperors themselves. One player called Emperor Tiberius, an old goat. <laughs> what did he do to deserve that? I believe he was thought to be sexually licentious. So he deserved it, then? Believe me, given the behaviour of some Roman emperors, he was a paragon of good behaviour. The farces must not have been entirely suppressed anyway, because Emperor Hadrian was quoted as commissioning a performance of them a century or so later. The author of the document I referred to speculated. The statues either presided over the Via Atilana, that's the road that led into the city, or stood beside the altar of Bacchus and were brought out whenever the games were held. Bacchus is the one with the grapes, right? Yes, among other things. They do seem like appropriate companions for him, don't they? How they came to be the possession of the society is lost to history, but the document I spoke of is dated from 1687, so it must have been before then. The statues in the society remained in Italy until the Napoleonic Wars. There was a riot in 1797, when Joseph Bonaparte and the French general uh, Mathurin Léonard Defoe tried to incite a Republican revolt in Rome against the Vatican. Sounds like that didn't go well. No, indeed. A fire set by one of the rioters damaged the building the society was using as its headquarters and the decision was made to move it to a safer space underground in London. Here it has remained ever since, in this defunct theatre purchased for the purpose in 1801. It has survived several more wars and the blitz due to that wise decision. There is a trap door in the property's room that leads down to a Victorian sewer, most likely a culverted tributary of the Thames. I have been down there and seen evidence of old bunk beds and discarded food in the forties. I suspect it may have been used as a bomb shelter. Jen had almost forgotten about their tea, listening fascinated to Dr. Harrington's stories. Hundreds of years of secret history. A mysterious underground theatre shut up since Georgian times. What other enigmas could this place hold? Who knows about it? How many performers are there? Including myself? Two. Two? Yes, there's just me and Jonah. What, him out by the stairs? What? <laughs> well you mean Mr. Grimaldi? No, no, he is not a performer. Although, for all we know, he may have been in the past. There's certainly the occasional reference to him in case files. No, Joe will be along shortly, but he and I are all there is now. Oh, I suppose there's Mrs. Green who comes to clean once a month. Her father was Roger Green, a performer when I was first inducted. The problem is, in the past we had an object which would allow us to find other people with presents, but it was lost when the performer in possession of it died. Since then, we've had to rely on word of mouth, and that has not been entirely effective. Those people with presents do not like to talk about them, as I'm sure you can understand. It was pure luck that you and I met. If we had not, I... But care. Ah, Speak of the devil, here's the other member of our sadly-diminished merry band. In the office, Joe! Within a minute or so, the door to the office opened, and in came a large, ruddy bear of a man. His thinning hair and bushy beard were almost white, but it was clear from his colouring that they had once been a bright red. He was tall, easily six feet or more, and had thick arms, like ham hocks, and a great belly. He wore a plaid shirt with the sleeves rolled up and workman's trousers with many pockets. All Veronica. Care to explain the mysterious text? "'Joe Wilson, may I introduce... "'Jen McIntyre. "'She, they pronounce. "'Had Jen?' "'Cheerfully, Joe offered his hand, and when Jen took it, "'enveloped theirs in a warm, hearty, and slightly sweaty handshake. "'Jen retrieved their hand and wiggled their fingers "'to make sure they were all still in one piece. "'Joe looked Jen up and down, appraisingly, "'in a way that made them feel like some sort of livestock "'being assessed for market. "'Jen has a present. "'I've asked them to join the society.' Not much to air, is there? More than you think. Where are you from then? Glasgow. Oh, you mean why my brown I Well, uh, my ma's ma was from Ghana, and my pa's pa was from Lebanon. Most of the rest of from Malgai. Look, Dr. H, I'm gonna need some time to think about this. I'll get back to you. But I, I didn't give you my um. I'll find you in the hospital. <sighs> well done, Joe. Why did you have to put your foot in it? Now you've scared them off. The first one i found in years. If she's scared of me, then she isn't cut out for this sort of work. As an exasperated Jen hurries down the hall and up to the marble stairs towards the door, let us return to the hotel a few yards above, where a cleaner is knocking on room 247. Room 247, according to the information in the hotel's booking system, should not currently be occupied. And yet, on room 247's door handle, hangs the hotel's branded Do Not Disturb sign. He knocks again, and there is no response. Ah, he thinks, the sign has simply been left on the door by mistake. Removing it, he opens the door and steps inside. Cleaning supplies are ready. When he sees what is inside the room, the cleaner goes pale as a ghost, and drops his spray bottle of cleaning food, and the Do Not Disturb sign on the floor. He backs away, then flees to fetch his shift manager the bottle leaks blue liquid onto the dark brown carpet, mixing with the other, darker fluid which is already soaking into it. The Pantaloons Society is a Cytogram Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, AM Pronouns, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. This episode uses sounds from freesand.org For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter, at Pantaloonsop. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening.